<laughs> I, I ding myself. <laughs> um, yeah, I only um, uh, I only just got on too, so I was almost late. Uh, no, but you weren't. You were we were on I time. Know, I don't know. It might have been one thirty one when I um, when I first stepped to the computer too. So I feel like maybe uh, were you synced to uh, Cupertino? Were you is that uh, uh, GSM time? I just made that up. Something like that. The Grand uh, Green, Greenwich uh, Mean uh, Standard Time. G- well, I, I was I was watching the WWDC keynote address. Were you? Did you see? The, did they talk about uh, food safety talk? And in, uh, in they talked <laughs> no. about a bunch of other podcasts. I didn't see if they mentioned us. No, they they didn't. I, I'm only partway through. So the, I mean, there, there's still hope. That's right. I mean, we could be no spoilers. Spoiler, spoiler alert. Uh, it might it might pop up. Uh there's uh, there's some cool stuff coming, right? Like um, I kind of want to get a, uh, a Mac Pro, the five, I, the, the the six K display. I want the display. I really want. I want <laughs> do you want? Do you want it? Seven thousand dollars, bad? I no no. I want. I don't want to pay seven thousand dollars for it, but I'd like. I really would like that display. I have, oh, I think I would. I, I you know I definitely want to go and and look at it in the store. Yeah, it's got a lot. There's a lot of nits. There's a. <laughs> there's so many nits. I didn't even know what a knit was until this week, and then I had—I still don't really know. I just assume that it—it makes things bright. It's uh, well, and, spark, and it's sparkly, and the more knits, the better. More knit, always more knits, always more knits. I was—we should have kept this for later because then we would have good show titles <laughs> from the lots of knits. So good, yeah. Um, so yeah, and I, I'm confused on some of the Mac stuff, and I know this isn't Mac safety talk, but um, but we do we do like the we do like the apples and. Um, I am I'm confused on like what iTunes going away really means. Uh, I don't yes, I don't yes. think it means anything. Well, like I think yeah, it means the app different. is going away, which it needed yeah. to do for a long time because it's an absolutely crappy app, right? I mean it was or it was an app that was trying to do too many things. I like, right. I don't I mean yeah, I need to uh I need to listen to well, so yeah, so I need to uh um I need to listen to some more podcasts. I need to listen finish listening to the keynote. Yeah. So, but it's it's fine. It, it'll, it'll all be fine. I mean, I understand they're also trying to push people towards <clears throat> streaming music streaming and i'm i'm just old school i just want to have my the music that i have that i bought with my with my money um on my device <laughs> yeah but whatever if that goes away whatever i mean it's fine It'll be i don't fi- think that's I'll be gonna, fine like so that was the part that i'm confused i don't think that's gonna go away right like well, i got th- stuff you can still buy I'm, i i can't imagine i don't need to buy gonna, stuff uh, well but well but here's the thing if you want to buy stuff what, can you keep buying stuff i'm sure you can right i'm sure that's all stuff yeah. <laughs> there'll be stuff to sell and there'll be stuff for us to buy i don't I bought some stuff. I want to make sure. So that's what that, that's well, the confusing part. Right. It does, that might go away, or I don't know. But well, the, the, stu- the stuff, the, the 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 actual tunes that I bought, um, I, I don't want those to go away. That would that would really suck. But I yeah. I, don't, I don't think that's what's going to happen. But are anyway, you? A, I, I really don't know, Ben. Have we talked? Are you an Apple Music subscriber? Oh, or I'm not. Like- no, I don't, I don't pay for any. I, I am all about the television. Um, I pay for so much television. <laughs> it's really bad. <laughs> I um, subscribe to a lot of things. Uh, but, yeah. but, and, I, and, I, and I support some, um, I support some podcasts uh, and, 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 you know, Patreon. Um, but I do not pay for any music streaming services. And I thought, <clears throat> I thought about it. Um, I thought about Apple Music. Uh, I thought about Spotify. Um, but I just don't listen to that much right. music. And, and here's the thing. The music that I want to listen to is the music that I already own. You don't need to stream. You don't need to buy Or yeah. if, if there's something that I want, I buy it. And then I'll always have it uh, until Apple takes it away. Until, until they take it away. See, I, I have – 
I, I subscribe to uh, Apple Music, and I have for for a while, like two or three years. And then I have iTunes Match, so I don't know if that's going to go away, or they'll just right. call that Apple Music Match or whatever yep. it is. But I've uploaded many thousands of songs of mine from CDs that I purchased, the music that I that I owned in in yep. uh, physical form, and I yep. uploaded that to the to the cloud, mm-hmm. and um, and I want that to all exist, and it. And then uh, I really I use like we use it through the through the Alexa person uh, mm-hmm. a lot. And now I mean, and I think it was like around Christmas, Apple Music and Alexa started talking to each other. So I was subscribing to Amazon Music, and now I don't um, anymore. As of today, I'm, I, today was a cleanup day, like cleaning up subscriptions. Mm. I, I was I, I got rid of our uh, Amazon Music unlimited because i was like i had two things and i we over the last like five months i've only ever used one and then i uh i i got uh uh, this is uh, makes for great great uh radio but i um we we did we have like an at&t unlimited thing that gives us showtime but i was already subscribing to showtime so i cleaned that up and now we only get showtime i only have one subscription to showtime not two which was stupid mm-hmm. um and uh and i also moved over all my podcasts to overcast because i had oh. some that were existing in podcast yep yep and and that was so that was like i did that that was today it was like i was cleaning up i was cleaning up my my electronics well, that's, um, that's good. Yeah, I um, I the only thing that I'm going to use podcasts for is apparently watching things like the Apple Keynote because you can't because uh, yes. it's video and, and Overcast doesn't support video. So yeah, so I just did some quick googling um uh, about um what's happening to iTunes and um there's uh there's some really stupid articles out there with really bad headlines um or 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 really bad leads. So for example, we're not going to link to the uh Time magazine um article that has the lead iTunes more like buy tunes. <laughs> um but we but but uh, Time yeah, That's good. exactly. I like time I like Time that. did very nicely uh link to uh the Ars Technica website um and and they have an article and so we're going to link to ours because uh, they're like good people and they write good stories and it's not a stupid headline um with the stupid lead so uh yeah so so basically the bottom line is it looks like all that's going away is the itunes app right uh, yeah that the functionality of that is just going into three different apps apple music apple Podcasts, and apple tv which is what it should have done a long time ago right those are those are really three separate things one is songs and one is spoken and one is things you watch right so it just makes perfect sense that they'll be split up yeah, yeah. So that that was the way I read it in the four headlines that I read, and I was mm-hmm. like, I don't think this is going to affect me yep. um, very much. Do you? Okay. So speaking of other things that you subscribe to, this mm-hmm. is not a product that I uh, that I use or like. So it's not a sponsor because we don't have any sponsors. <laughs> um, well, well, not as far as yeah. you know. I might have a sponsor. Oh, true, true. This we could be that could be a challenge is uh, find the hidden sponsor. Um, <laughs> just a podcast where we do challenges. Yeah, it's a challenge podcast. Uh, which uh, plant a sponsor? Um, <laughs> so, I uh, do you use the Apple News app on your phone or on your iPad? Because I do. And uh, I I do, but do you? That's that's question number one. The answer is no. Um, although I know people that do use it, and and it's it's got some interesting functionality to it. It does, and now and this. I don't even know this. I missed this because uh, other than Twitter has been harassing me, and then it's popped up in the last uh, I don't know two weeks in my Apple News as I go to it. Is there's this like News Plus thing? 
that that you can subscribe for you know I, you know like the the model of like ten dollars a month and you get like millions of magazines and you know the New Yorker and I don't know what else like maybe you get a subscription to it, it's like a un, unlocks the paywalls um, so I don't I get I don't know I I haven't I haven't gotten that far I haven't broken down to that um, in pay I I've been you know I subscribe to um, the New York Times and the Washington Post and then that's it. I don't, I don't pay for any other news, um, from a subscription standpoint, I, I just read the free stuff, which is terrible for journalism. Um, but, but maybe this app, I, so the thing that I was, that I'm interested in that I haven't read on that I want to know if you knew anything about was if Apple news, if I subscribe or Apple news plus, if I subscribe to that, do the good people that do journalism stuff actually get paid or is it, is it kind of like, uh, the, the music where the artists don't really get paid with the, with the Apple music that I subscribe to. Well, that's, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you know? no. And, and with the streaming services, yeah, same thing. So yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know the answer. So I don't know. Yeah. Someone else. Um, yeah, so I, I subscribe to the New York Times and the Washington Post as well. I added a Washington Post subscription, which I'm really happy about. And I oh, and I also get the Wall Street Journal for free through the university, so I do that. Um, and I'm I'm really not happy with. And this is not a political podcast, but I'm not happy with the New York Times. Um, but I still sort of just keep subscribing because I guess they're you know the paper of record. But um, yeah. yeah, and then um, and then I think I subscribe to a couple of magazines, The Atlantic. And maybe one other, but uh, but yeah. And I'm, the problem is, I just feel guilty because I don't ever really read anything, you know, right. <laughs> ever except <laughs> except occasionally, you know, one or two Washington Post stories a day about how the country is falling apart. Right, right, right. Well, and uh, there's a I think there's a Japanese word for this. The <clears throat> all the, all the uh, news that you don't read that you have on your shelves, right? There's no, there's, uh, it's not sparking joy. <laughs> it's not sparking joy. It's not sparking joy at all. Oh. Uh, um, I read a book this week. Whoa. I just emailed you a whole it. book yeah. all in one week. Wow. I mean, like eighty-five percent of it. <laughs> um, it's a food safety book too. Mm. Um, it was okay. Uh, it's a so I don't think we've talked. I don't think we talked on the podcast about it. But there's there's a book called Outbreak, which and Outbreak is not a um, sponsor. But um, there's an author who uh, his name is uh, Timothy Litton. Um, and he, uh, sent a bunch of messages to a bunch of people in the food safety world, um, about a new book on food safety. And he actually sent some copies to some people, including you. And I never got a copy of it. And I had a massive, uh, fear of missing out, um, situation. And then I got an email finally saying, Hey, look, there's this new book on food safety. You should order it. And I, I didn't order it, but I rented it. Do you know you could rent a book? I think I did know that. Yeah, it was it was good. So I mean, I spent uh, ten bucks and I read the book, and it was uh, the book was okay. Um, I'm. Yeah. And what's the title of the book? Outbreak. Out. Okay, food but bo- not to be confused with Outbreak, the uh, the 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 novel by right, Robin or, Cook in nineteen published in nineteen eighty seven. Correct. Correct. This is Outbreak: colon, Foodborne Illness and the Struggle for Food Safety. Um, and uh, it. Uh, uh, the uh, information that I have in the email is foodborne illness is a big problem. Watch those chicken breasts, and you're likely to spread salmonella to your countertops, kitchen towels, and other foods nearby. Even salad greens can become biohazards when toxic strains of E. coli inhabit the water. You see your gate crops. All told, contaminated food causes 48 million illnesses a year, blah, blah, blah. Um, anyway, check. Like, I, I am – 
I, I wanted to uh, read a book. I want to read all the books on food safety um, that are like uh, popular press kind of books. And I uh, and so this was this was on the list, and and it was it was all right. Um, and I, I'd say that like I want I guess I wanted it to be better, um, and, but it was uh, it's a collection of outbreaks um, going back to. Um, really like, um, milk regulations and, and in, in the collection of outbreaks, um, it's really kind of about the regulations that came out of it. So there, you know, it starts off talking about Jensen farms and it's a whole bunch of milk sanitation. Then we get into, um, some, uh, the canned food regulations in the seventies and then there's, um, burgers and then salads and then, um, get into, uh, things like, um, uh, food safety audits and stuff. And, um, so anyway, and then the, there's a whole bunch on L, the leafy greens marketing agreement. It's yeah. So anyway, it's, it was, I, I think, yeah. So, um, Tim, Timothy Litton is the associate Dean for research and faculty development, distinguished university professor and professor of law at the center of law center for law, health and society at Georgia state Uni- university college of law in Atlanta, Georgia. So check it's a, if people are looking to read about a food safety book, this is a food safety book. Well, there you go. <laughs> that, that's, that's a ringing endorsement. Well, I'm really surprised he didn't write, get you to write a blurb for the book. It was, Do so, you like to read books? This is, a, this book. is a book. It has words in it that you can read. There, they say there's food safety and stuff. It was, it's a, um, I don't know. I, I, like I said, I guess I was, I was looking for, I don't want to, I don't want to like trash the, um, the book and it doesn't deserve to be trashed. It's a good, if, if I was, if I was a graduate student or an undergraduate student that was interested in food safety, I would read this book and I would, I will suggest this book to my students who are like new, new to the field because it does a good job of, of history and regulation. Um, I, I wanted more about what happened in the outbreaks. And, and so, but that's a, that's a segue that I, to something else that I want to talk about in a minute. Well, you, you saying, uh, read, read this book made me think of, um, one of my, one of my, I don't want to cut all favorite book, but it made me think of a book, uh, that was popular, uh, when I was in college called steal this book by Abby Hoffman. Did you, uh, did you ever yes, read steal I, this book? I didn't, but I've, I think I know about steal this book from, um, like popular culture. Mm-hmm. Like it was in, uh, there's a couple of songs or something. Uh, yeah, uh, it was a good, is that, is that a good book? Should I read that one? I? Well, you should steal it. <laughs> yeah, well, once I steal it, do I need to read it or should I just get it? Well, I don't know. It doesn't say steal, then read this book. It just says steal this book. That's true. The style of counterculture mainly focused on ways to fight the government. I like this. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I had, um, what, so what, what's you, how are you? Cause you, uh, w- mm. not to compromise your OPSEC, but, <laughs> but it doesn't really matter now because you're, you're back, you've landed back in the United States of America. Well, back as far as you know, say. as far as I know, it's true. I don't, I don't hear a Portuguese accent. So, uh, I, I feel like you've turned that off. Well, they uh, have, the, have the internet in Portugal <laughs> and right. in Brazil. You know, we recorded a podcast once when you we were did. In- we did. I yeah. hauled my microphone all the way there. Oh, speaking of which, I'm. I don't know what happened. I have a. I have my microphone stand at home, and then I have my. I had my microphone stand at work, and I can't find the one at work, and I. I'm very puzzled. 
Are you at work now? No, no, but oh. but, but but I was the last time we were recorded, <laughs> and true. it just made me think of hauling. I'm just hauling things to Brazil. Made me think of hauling the. I think I might have even hauled that heavy microphone stand. But anyway, did you, um, did you leave it in Brazil? No, no, it was in my office. The last time I recorded one before the last time that Weird. I recorded one. So uh, yeah, I'm scratching my head over that. But anyway, um, uh, Brazil. Yeah, so I was in Brazil for a very short trip, uh, and in fact, um, one of the things that I had uh, already loaded up that I will uh, move to the correct location in my browser tabs is I visited um, Danielle um, Maffey, who was a a uh, woman who was working on her PhD and she came and visited my lab for a year and she's a very delightful um, young woman and she now has a faculty uh, p- position at, uh, oh, they have, they, everything in Brazil is an acronym and you always say it, um, uh, ESALC, it's E-S-A-L-Q, which is the Escola Superior de Agriculture Luis de Caros, uh, and so Luis de Caros is a fellow who uh, was a, a coffee plantation owner, and he basically donated his entire coffee plantation to um, uh, to the state of Sao Paulo, and they built an agricultural college there, and then uh, it eventually became part of the University of Sao Paulo. Um, and it and I visited for the first time and gave a wonderful talk about risk assessment to a bunch of undergrads um, at the, at. SLQ or SLC, I don't know how you say it, but anyway, uh, Danielle sent me a wonderful YouTube video, <clears throat> which is in English. And of I, you? Uh, no, no, of the, oh. of the campus, uh, marketing, marketing, marketing. Uh, she sent some photographs of me, which I won't share because uh, you know I'm, I'm old. Um, uh, but but the but the video, the YouTube video is in English, um, and it's it's just a, it's really it's really cool, and it's it's just a, it's a wonderful uni- university, and it's it's about two hours, two and a half hours from Sao Paulo. In, it's still in Sao Paulo State. It's about two and a half hours from Sao Paulo City, um, and uh, it just was really nice. And I had a very short but very nice visit there. Cool. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and, uh, and you, you flew back, uh, on the, on the red eye and you got back super early this morning and, yep. uh, you're like a, like a professional, like, a, like, <laughs> and I wouldn't even say like, like a, like a trooper, like, I mean, like a pro here you are, we're, uh, um, 149, uh, PM and you're, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're hitting it. You're well, hitting it hard. Well, I, I think, I think all, all of the flights to Brazil are red eye. So I flew, I flew, so I flew and I should, we should also mention, uh, they don't sponsor this podcast, but they sort of, they sort of do, uh, sponsor us. Uh, that is, I was paid to go to Brazil by IAFP um, because the what I did on Monday was I spoke at the Brazilian affiliate, uh, and then on Tuesday I visited uh, Danielle's university. But um, yeah, IAFP uh, paid my coach airfare uh, down and back, and uh, I upgraded myself uh, on with points and stuff um, so that I could have a business class seat. And so I kind of got some sleep on the way down, and I kind of got some sleep on the way back. So. That's, that's, how awesome. I, that's how I roll. That's how you, that's how you roll. Yeah. Um, well, good. I'm glad uh, we uh, we scheduled this a couple of weeks ago after we or last week or whenever it was after we talked to um, Linda Harris and, uh, and and I'm glad it worked out. Oh, and geez, what are we do? What are we doing? Spending all this time? Oh, wait a minute now. My my call recorder. Oh no! Is showing zero 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 zero. Oh oh oh! Is your call recorder going? Oh, let me find out. I see that my call recorder is going. All right, I'm, so. I'm recording. You see this happen? This there. Here we go. I got it. All right, Nin- good. 1932, 1933. Now, We're going. All right, all right. So this is my episode, and I will and upload, so you'll the, upload the audio. Good. I gotcha. Whew. Gotcha. 
Uh, anyway, so the point that I was going to say, Ben, why have we spent zero 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 minutes, <laughs> however long, uh, talking? Um, um, and and we have a lot of we have a, a lot of business to get to because Ben, we've had two guests on the podcast the last two episodes. We are really behind on listener feedback. How come we're spending all this time talking about Apple and books and and all this nonsense? That's how we roll, Don. That's how that's the, <laughs> as as one of the uh, reviewers. Um, uh, uh, in our, uh, iTunes, let me look at this in, in podcasts. Uh, some reviewer said, um, if you, you know, come for the banter of uh, a couple of guys talking about their families and what they're watching on Netflix and travel. And then if you're here for food safety, fast forward an hour and then you'll start hearing it. Um, so, uh, that's, that's how we roll, but we can, we're, let's, let's hit, let's end it at 20 minutes and let's, uh, get into, um, listener feedback and all those good things. Um, let's do it. Where, yeah. Where do you want to, where do you want to start? There's lots. I mean, we have a ton of stuff here let's, and I got, let's, yeah, go I, got t- I got two other things that I, we got to get talked to as talk about as well. All right. Well, let's, let's do some, let's do some listener feedback. Um, and let's do, um, <clears throat> let's do the most recent first. So let's work okay. backwards. Um, like cause the people that already have sent us feedback weeks ago, they probably already forgotten. So, um, so, so this one, uh, says you can read my message, but not my name. Um, and the question, and the question, so it references something called dinky D and the question is, is it safe to eat? And should I add it to my disaster prep kit? Ben, do you know what dinky D is? Oh, I do now. I do. I do. After I looked at the link, Dinky D, or also known as Dinky D Meat and Veggies, was a fictional branded dog food that was featured in Mad Max Two, and in the video game Mad Max. Comes in a can uh, on the in the uh, Road Warrior. Um, and so in Mad Max Two, uh, this comes from a uh, fandom wiki. Uh, Max eats a can of Dinky D while overseeing the compound attack. By Lord Humongous's Marauders. After finishing it, he throws his can to his dog, which immediately starts eating the remains, and also fending off the, the gyro captain, who is keen on getting his hands on the can. It is later revealed that Max carries a full box of Dinky D in his car. As we uh, should all, Ben. As yeah. we should all. <laughs> so, uh, is this safe to eat? Um, yeah. I mean, I, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Post post apocalypse uh, dog food, but but pre apocalypse dog food is perfectly safe to eat. Absolutely. This is why we have uh, low acid uh, canned food regulations. Uh, keep the dogs from getting the botulism, uh, and also people. And uh, yeah, I would I would throw um, to uh, uh, listener um, uh, deep, deep, deep Max. Deep Max. <laughs> Say Deep Max. Uh, throw a bunch of dog food. Uh, get it on sale. Um, there is a there is a fun. Um, This is something we should talk about briefly, but there was a fun situation a while ago, um, and I I say fun um, in in, uh, air quotes, where uh, many uh, food safety specialists would get a call from a person who was very concerned about canned uh, cat food and dog food that that this individual was feeding to her – to her cat and mm-hmm. called many of us on like evenings and weekends. And I think called you on a like Thanksgiving morning or Christmas or something. Um, and so, uh, it was like a rite of passage in the world of food safety to get, get a call from the, um, cat, cat, fi- cat food lady. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but so 
why I think about it is because this was the question. Um, it, it had to do with like canned cat food that was, um, you know, maybe temperature abuse that was sitting in, in her car for a while. And was it safe to eat? Uh, and would, you know, would I feed it to my cat? And, and what were all of the things that could go wrong? And, um, and there's uh, sort of like talking about quality and what might happen to the product over time. And maybe there was some dents in it, maybe not. Um, so anyway, I, I, I kind of landed on uh, in this in this discussion that yeah it it'll be it'll be fine from a from a safety standpoint um, and uh, but uh, quality wise over time uh, you know if you have your canned foods um, in a hot car for for uh, days and, and weeks or over the apocalypse um, it uh, it might not be the most highest quality. Dinky beef and veggies. Well, and the other thing to realize too is if you get the temperature up high enough, you, there there may be thermophilic organisms uh, that are the spores are not able to grow because the temperature is too cold. Like these organisms only grow when the temperature gets up above 100 or 120 degrees Fahrenheit, and so right. they may exist in canned foods and then only start to grow when <clears throat> that food gets temperature abused. So, but that's a, that's a spoilage issue, not a safety issue. Right, right, right. So uh, yeah, eat it. I like it when we get these. Uh, uh, food safety, uh, questions. Uh, we did, uh, we did a similar thing when we went to, did a live podcast, uh, for, um, for our friend, uh, Beth McCoy, uh, Dr. Beth McCoy at, uh, Geneseo, uh, and talked about, uh, a book, uh, science fiction book and some of the foods that they were eating in post-apocalypse. So keep the post-apocalyptic and pre-apocalyptic food safety questions coming. Indeed. So this, this, uh, this particular, this next particular question I want to do comes from, <clears throat> Somebody that follows up us on Twitter, uh, and that's a, u- a user that goes by the name at Presage Analytics. And the question is, uh, it links to a, a Facebook video, um, uh, which is from a person uh, called Blossom. And the header on the video is, is your food fake or real? Find out with these 16 easy tests at home. Did you have a chance to look at this video at all? I did not look at the video. I read, I mean, I read through the, the PDF here, but tell me about the video. Uh, well, basically, it's a kind of a, a rather well-produced video that shows 16 easy tests uh, that you can do to test to see if your food is, is fake or real. It's a, it's a short video. It's only about three minutes. Um, again, it's going to be a little complicated to link to it because you've got a, we got a link to it on Facebook. So you need a Facebook account to view it, I guess. Um, and it's um, it's a... Uh, <clears throat> if I would encourage everybody to watch it, um, not because they need the views, but because it's just kind of interesting, and they they kind of it's 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 well done, right? I mean, I mean, it's total nonsense. I mean, a lot of it is just just BS, but but it's um, it's it's quite well done. Um, and and uh, but but it's again, you know, I mean, sixteen easy tests that you can do at home. Uh, presented in three minutes on a video, um, you know it, that's not scientific, Ben. <laughs> uh, it's not. That's not um, good. Science. There's no. There's no references, and it turns out again. We will. We'll also. We'll. We'll. We'll link to the. For sure, we'll link to the. The. The, the debunking uh, video. Um, <clears throat> 
or the debunking article uh, that that will tell people like you know what the why it's why it's nonsense. But yeah, I mean, There's so it's, it's things like uh, processed cheese um, that's mixed with chemicals is difficult to melt. Uh, rice is mixed with bits of plastic. Um, baby food contains ground up rocks. Uh, vitamins with synthetic supplements burn, but natural supplements don't. Um, meat contains glue. Uh, anyway, we'll we'll link to we'll link to the the, the debunking um, article, and we'll try to link to the video if we can. Yeah, and some of this stuff like this is it's a it's a cool one. Um, as I read through the through the article here, it's cool because some of this stuff is. Um, uh, it's one of these things where it's a it's a a little bit true, or there's a little bit of uh, of information that that if you look at it, you know, like the meat meat contains glue used to bind unused meat scraps. You know, there's um, uh, what's it called? Glut- transglutamase. Is that the right thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, where where there are some non intact meats that use this this enzyme essentially to that. It's not glue. Uh, it's you know quote, quote glue um, that allows for um, you know smaller pieces of meat to be put together into a, a form. And so it's like, well, it's not doesn't really contain glue, but but I see what you're saying here, and it's easy to, um, to it makes for a good story, right? Like it makes for something that's uh, uh, that that makes for a good uh, video on Facebook. Indeed. Um, green peas can be boiled to reveal old split peas that have been dyed to disguise them. <laughs> wow, well, I, don't, I don't know any old dyed peas. No, that's that seems like a lot of work for uh, <laughs> for some I'm, peas. Must have uh, huge margins, right? It's got to be like <laughs> got to look at a high high value product of uh, individually dyeing those peas. Yeah. Um, oh, but, you know, yeah. it's, speaking of speaking of food fraud, actually, this is this is apropos my trip to Brazil. So uh, I so there were there. This was the Brazilian uh, food protection uh, affiliate meeting uh, annual meeting, and they had a focus on food fraud. And uh, they said, "Hey, can you give a talk on food fraud?" And I said. Sure. How hard could that be? Um, <laughs> that turns out, is, is, it, well, is it pretty hard? Well, so the title that I gave myself was a microbial risk assessor looks at food fraud. And so my 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 angle was, okay, I know how to do microbiological risk assessment, right? Could we use these same tools and techniques um, to try to estimate risk of food fraud? And it turns out it's, it's actually kind of complicated because we have a much more rich database of information about microorganisms and much less risk information about food fraud. But it did encourage me to go read a bunch of articles on food fraud, and I did meet um, a really uh, nice guy from uh, the Citadel University in South Carolina uh, named Roy uh, Chernoff, who is a food fraud. Uh, he's a young assistant professor there uh, working on food fraud. Um, interesting background. His undergraduate degree uh, was in um, um, entomology, and then he got from somehow from entomology to looking at forged documents because it was an easy job in a place that he wanted to live. Um, and then from there, he decided to go on and get a PhD. Um, uh, at, he, and he studied at uh, Michigan State with uh, known food fraud expert uh, John Spink. So, oh, well, that's kind of cool. I um, where where is this? There, the um, I just sent you a, a text, and I hope this is the right one. But I was at a at a meeting a few years ago where. Um, uh, uh, Sean Kennedy, uh, your friend, uh, friend, you know, uh, I think listener of the, of the podcast, um, who is involved in, uh, food defense, uh, uh pre- presented on, uh, a food fraud database that, um, yes. industry individuals yep. can, uh, yep. um, can subscribe to. And it's a really cool thing. Like I hadn't seen this and, and from, you know, we, we talk about, um, 
a lot of what we do is follow events and incidents, right? And say, okay, well, what can we learn from it? And I really enjoyed hearing from Sean about this, um, this thing, this database, because it was like proactively, all right, if you're sourcing like paprika for a major company and you've got to get it from like 40 different suppliers to, to meet, you know, whatever your needs are and you've got, you're, you're making, you know, pot pies in, in all these different countries and you need a, uh, a whole bunch of different supplies. You got to figure out, okay, well, where am I going to source it from and what's most likely going to be there if it is fraud, fraudulent, like if someone's adding something in there to, um, to make it, you know, heavier or whatever. And it was just, it was really cool to see this in action to be like, all right, give me the ingredient. Let's look at incidents that have happened, recalls. Um, if you wanted to do analytics, here are the things that you should look for, um, based on, on history. So, um, I hope this is the right one. It's called, uh, the food fraud database and it looks like it's owned by Discernus um, or run by Discernus now. But, um, and if it's the wrong one, this is another food fraud database. Yeah, no. And there's a, there's a, there's a bunch of food fraud databases. Another one, uh, is, is, was originated by the, the USP, the pharmacopoeia. Um, but, uh, yeah, there was one also developed by NCFBD, uh, back in the day, which I think was spun off into a, um, <clears throat> Spun off into a standalone uh, product. Yes, yeah, the food fraud database is now owned and operated by Discernus, and I think uh, I think, I think that was it. it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So, oh, and I have to apologize. I got Roy's uh, last name wrong. Um, he is Roy, Doctor Roy Fenoff, um, and we'll link we'll link to his page um, uh, on the Citadel website. Cool, awesome. Um, all right. Well, uh, fake food. Um, next one here is uh, don't reveal my name or message or content on the air. Um, <laughs> okay, well, so, that takes uh, care of that one. Yep, the, we'll move on to that one. Uh, it, we'll, let's just say it was a nice shout out. Someone who listened to the podcast heard us shout out and said, um, yep, thanks a lot. Uh, uh, next one from a uh, friend of the podcast, Deep Weed, um, uh, our friend Chris Stone. Uh, also, if you want to find Chris Stone on, on Twitter, which is where we know Chris from, it's he's uh, at at sentient microbe. Um, hello gentlemen, uh, not my usual weed reference, but I noticed that a local school recently made their own salads from their garden. It's probably low risk really, but salad these days just triggers my food safety warning klaxons. Uh, and so he, uh, in- included a link to a Twitter, um, uh, a tweet uh, from uh, a, an individual named Michelle O'Regan, who's in Victoria, British Columbia. She said, we harvested beautiful salad and enjoyed it all together. The best part was that we grew out of the ingredients in our school garden. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so Chris just said, uh, thanks, you know, thanks for the show, but just wanted to uh, let you guys know about this. And so I, uh, I was really excited about this cause I have some, I've got some history in this. Um, mm. I did uh, some. Um, let me see if I can find a good link here. Um, so back back in the day, um, when I maybe six or seven years ago, um, I started working with our Depo- Department of Public Instruction um, here, our school system in, in North Carolina, and I, I provide uh, a bunch of food safety. Um, uh, technical support and and uh, consultation. If we if we have incidents in this, in schools, if there's an outbreak uh, and there's been a you know a couple, we have um, 
uh, you know, uh, power outages. What do we do with food? I, um, we, I have a really close relationship with them. They, they've, they've in fact funded one of my students. Um, they've funded, um, you know, so, several projects in, in, in my program, but, um, uh, Ellen Schumacher, formerly Ellen Thomas, uh, most, uh, most of her masters was funded by our state department of public construction, looking at leafy green temperatures. Um, but how, how my relationship with them actually really kicked off and started was a question that they posed was, um, we see a rise of school gardens. Um, many of our teachers, volunteers, parents, um, who are involved in school gardens would, would love to consume the, the vegetables, uh, fruits and vegetables that they're growing. And we need to give them some guidance on how to, um, do that in a safe way. And, and so, um, another, uh, former student now, um, uh, member of USDA's FNS, uh, Ashley Chaffetz, um, she, she took this on and, uh, together we created a, a document, um, called growing safer gardens. Um, and I think we can find that, at, like, I'll send you a link for it. Um, and, uh, but the idea was, um, Let's let's look at food safety risks. Let's let's apply good agricultural practices to gardens. And then, um, what Ashley did is spend a bunch of time actually going to school and community gardens to get a better understanding of the infrastructure that are in gardens. And so, as, as wait a deep, minute, we, so wait, you, you're telling me that before you went and gave people advice on how to do a thing, <laughs> you first went and watch them do that thing. Ben, do you, you know how long that takes? A good extension person just shoots from the hip. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, we, uh, we gave them a little bit of, of like, here are things like, here are some gaps that you might want to employ, like think about water. Um, but then we, uh, we went ahead and, and like went out there and said, okay, let's take a, let's, well, I don't even know where we're starting. I don't even know what we're beginning with. Like I, I know what a garden looks like, but I don't like I, at, at that point, it's like, I sure as hell don't know what a school garden looks like. Yep. Yep. Um, and tell me how you, how do you do stuff? Um, how, where do you get water from and who's in charge of it? And do you try to keep animals out and, um, and sort of all that, that kind of stuff. Um, and so, so what came out of it was this document growing safer gardens. Mm -hmm. We published a couple of papers, yep. um, on it as well. But, um, uh, and so I just sent you a link that we can, yep. that we can link to, yep. um, the, I, I guess the most, the most interesting thing for me around this was, um, it, it's like what you and I have talked about in pantries and, um, and, uh, food banks and pantries and emergency food situations where, um, individuals and, you know, people that are really passionate and want to, want to do this, um, don't always have a good starting point for what do they even have to worry about from a food safety standpoint. And we get into a weird situation because, and you, you, you probably experienced this as well. Um, there are many times when, when we kind of like are looked at the wet blankets of the discussion, right? Like yep. we're really excited about growing tomatoes and we want to put them in the, in the cafeteria and kids who, <clears throat> excuse me, that eat uh, tomatoes that they grow are more likely to love it and be healthy and, and all that good stuff that's that's in the um, nutrition health education um, literature. And then, and then you know, we, you and I and, and others put our hands up and like, yeah, but what about the salmonella and how are you going to control that? And not, we don't want to say no, but we want people to be aware of it. And that was the, you know, that was the starting point was, um, and, and really this was the pro one of the projects that 
that got me into something that we've talked about a bunch on sort of reality-based research. What are people actually doing? And let's get out there and observe and let's put a checklist together to figure out, you know, what, what kind of systematic, uh, let's look at it systematically. And then, um, and then secondly, the philosophy of, um, and, and this is what I really enjoy about working with our Department of Public Instruction. They're they're extremely protective of students, and and they are the the safeguard um, stewards of uh, of food safety in schools. You know, whether it's in the garden or in the cafeteria or in the classroom, they they take their responsibility really, um, uh, really um, seriously. And so, but but they also said, well, how can we do this safely? Like like, what, tell us. Don't don't let let's not just say no to this. Let's not just say it's a bad idea to do school gardens because that's not a good way to to build a community. And so so they were progressive and said, okay, well we we require good agricultural practices implementation for any produce that goes in through through our our cafeteria, and and we're not going to drop that requirement. So how do we help? How do we help these gardens do good agricultural practices? And that's what we did. So um, yeah, it was a really fun project uh, to be at. So so. Deep Weed asked us about like risk of of gardens, and and I I still don't think we have a lot of data on it. I I would guess that it's probably the same as uh, as my backyard garden, which is probably pretty similar to what it looks like in production agriculture from a risk standpoint. Um, the commercial world is concerned about risk and is focused on it because of the business aspect of it, and um, and so how well risk gets managed in a school or a community garden. I think there's a lot of variability. That's what we saw. And, right. and, uh, and what and I, yeah. Yeah. And what I would say is there's two, there's two things that are different about that. Number one, the people eating the fresh produce are kids and yep. their, their immune systems are not fully developed. And also their immune systems are not fully developed. So those little <laughs> critters, <laughs> are, are pooping machines, um, you know, and, and maybe don't have good hygiene to begin with, right? So they're more likely to be infected. They're more, I think, I mean, this is me talking off the top of my head, more likely to have diarrheal illness and more likely to maybe not have good hand-washing practices because they're children, right? And so th- those two things amplify the risk. To what extent they amplify the risk, I don't know, right? But right, but right. it's something to think about, right? Um, yep. Yeah, yeah, but but was, I mean, and it's so yeah, so so this is you know it's thanks for thanks for the to the listener for shooting us the the tweet and and it's fantastic that you have these resources that are already out there um, focusing on just exactly this. So, well, yeah, no, it was cool to do, and I'll highlight some other people that su- supported us: the North Carolina Recreation and Park Association, um, and then this group, Nourishing North Carolina, and Blue Cross Blue Shield North Carolina. They all gave us some money. Nice. To, to put this together. And it was like a little bit of money. It was like we pieced it together with a few thousand dollars, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and an internship for the student. And, but, but it was, um, but we got a, I, I, we got something that I think is a solution more than just like, Hey, you should worry about your water. Right. Like we, we kind of said, here's, here's the best way to do it. And here's, you know, a situation that it, if you have this, this isn't too bad, but it's not the best. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, it was, uh, it was cool. It was always fun to look back on those. Absolutely. Um, all right. So we did that. Oh, I like your, you're checking them off as we go along here. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and I guess I, you know, I, I, so for those who are nerds who care about this stuff, we have a shared folder in Dropbox and, um, the, um, Apple ecosystem, uh, for managing files has the ability to change, uh, to, to tag, um, uh, files with colors. 
And so I have um, a um, uh, Hazel script that basically goes through, and if it says uh, feedback in the in somewhere in the description of the file, it turns it red, so I know that it's feedback. And then uh, as I listen on the podcast, uh, I'm uh, as we talk about them, I'm I'm turning them blue manually, and apparently ha- the Hazel is not finding that and turning it back red, which is what I always worry about. But uh, yeah, so so the the next one, so so we'll we'll if I remember, we'll link to Hazel because um, uh, <laughs> it's a great app. Yeah. It, 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 do you use Hazel, by the way? No. Okay. So, so Hazel is a great app. It basically sits there in the background. It watches files and folders, and it looks and it has rules, and then basically it processes those files according to those rules. So, for example, I throw stuff on the desktop of my Mac uh, all the time. If it's, it just, that's just my scratch area for working. And I have a Hazel rule that says, hey, is this file older than one month? If it is, psh, get it out of here. And so huh. I can just throw stuff on my desktop, and I know that in a month it'll be cleaned up. And, and, and if I go back in a few days, it'll probably still be there. Now, the only problem comes is when I take an old file um, that I maybe downloaded, and it's got an, a, an older date or something, and I move that file to the desktop, and <laughs> it immediately Hazel deletes it because, because it's not, uh, uh, it, it, knows, it, it looks at the date. It's not magic, right? It looks at the date of the file. But then there's another uh, tool that I have uh, where I can do uh, what's called a, a touch-up and basically just, just hit the, the touch-up and it just makes the date of the file the, today's date. And then I can move it to the desktop. So, Oh, that's pretty good. Anyway, a oh. little, uh, little Mac uh, safety talk there for the Apple nerds. Uh, all right. So let's go uh, back and let's talk about um, the safety of pasta cooked in oh, a yes. wheel. Now this, did we talk about this already no, on the podcast? I talked didn't. about this with somebody and I don't know who. Um, I, well, and so this is when I started doing some work on this and I couldn't, cause there's a paper that I got to find while we're doing okay. it. And I, I didn't put it in here, but you, you start talking and I'm going to find this okay. paper. So, so the, uh, the message says, uh, share all details freely. Uh, and this is from uh, listener, uh, Marcel, uh, but we'll uh, we'll call him. Um, he's from Australia, so we'll call. Let's, let's well, we can call him. Let's call him Deep Cheese. Okay. So great question from Deep Cheese. So he says, uh, "Greetings from Sydney, Australia. I'm an avid consumer of your show. He's not a listener, Ben. He literally he literally consumes the show. I don't know how he does that. That's, that's, uh, a, that's I would think way. that the the bits of your phone would get caught in your teeth. But anyway, um, uh, so thanks thanks for listening, Marcelo. Um, uh, great work, and thanks for all you do. Uh, I'm a council environmental health officer." And during an inspection of a food business specializing in pizza and pasta, a colleague was recently surprised by the cooking pasta in a wheel. Here's the process. Warmed brandy, sorry, excuse me, warmed brandy is set alight and flambéed inside a massive semi-hollowed wheel of Parmigiano-Reggiano. As the alcohol burns off, the melted Parmesan is scraped away. Pasta, cooked al dente, is then added, and more cheese is scraped away. The wheel is put in the cool room overnight, and there's a video of the process which we will link to. And his question is, I am concerned about the pasta residue left on the cheese wheel. Perhaps that is why they put it in the cool room overnight. I suppose Bacillus Sirius is reduced by the flaming. I'm interested to hear your opinion. And so I'm going to give um, my opinion, and then, Ben, you can talk about this. So, yeah, again, maybe this came up uh, in discussions with Kathy Glass and Linda Harris uh, years ago at the Challenge Study Workshop. I'm not sure. Um, So uh, bottom line, flaming helps a bit. But Bacillus cereus forms spores, and so the flaming is for sure not going to do a thing to those spores. Um, my questions would be, what would be the pH and the water activity 
of the cheese on the inside of the wheel. Um, does any pasta remain? And of course, he, he said he's concerned about the pasta that remains. Um, uh, <clears throat> and so, I mean, Parmigiano-Reggiano is a cheese that is shelf-stable, right? It's stable at room temperature. It has a relatively low pH and water activity. It by itself is going to last a long time without any microbiological issues. And so the key question would be, what is the pH and the water activity of the pasta slash cheese mixture that is remaining, right? And of course, if you refrigerate it, that's good, but there are some psychotrophic strains of Bacillus cereus. And so I suppose you could imagine a scenario, and this is all hypothetical, right? You could imagine a scenario where um, Bacillus uh, cereus uh, was in the pasta and um, it would uh, grow because the pH and water activity permit it, and it would even grow under refrigeration conditions. And so over time, over many, many uses, you would gradually build up this population of uh, Bacillus cereus, and you might get somebody sick. That's, that's a, I, I, um, overall, if I was in this place and they offered me food out of that, that cheese wheel, I would totally try it because it sounds delicious. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's, that's my two cents on that. Yeah. And so I found the paper that I had already put in to the, um, uh, special, uh, um, Dropbox here and it's a paper from, uh, food protection trends in 2006, uh, by, uh, J Russell Bishop and Marianne, uh, Smikowski from university of Wisconsin. And the article is called, uh, storage temperatures necessary to maintain cheese safety. And we will link to, I, I downloaded it from, you know, somewhere, I think it's like the university of Wisconsin's website. Um, the, I don't think it actually exists on the, um, uh, on the FPT website yet. Um, anyway, I like this paper cause it gets to this immediately when I, when I saw this, this is the paper that I thought about. Um, I saw, um, uh, um, Jay, uh, Russell, I think, uh, I've now lost the, uh, paper. There we go. Uh, Jay Russell Bishop, uh, talk about this in 2006 or 2007 somewhere. And it was the most fascinating paper that I had seen. So what I, what I took away from it. So the table three is what I want to highlight to you. Um, Table three is a summary and data and cheeses reviewed in compositional calculations. And this really is the paper that was, was put out there to, um, talk about storage temperatures at retail not being um, necessary for all uh, refer for all cheeses um, and to help um, you know, manage uh, the science that's being implemented uh, in the food code. Anyway, so uh, table three we've got Parmesan, and this is the really like the other part that I um, that I think is really fascinating. Uh, so if we look at the Parmesan, um, it's got a, a pH of 5.4. So it's not, you know, it's not definitely not something that we would consider high acid. The water activity is really low at 0.92 and the, the, um, salt concentration. So the typical percentage of aqueous NaCl is this is super, super high. It's at nine, almost 9%, 8.38%. Um, percent. And so, uh, and the pathogen, um, one of the pathogens of concern, but, but actually there's some data that they present later on. Um, it also has a, a pathogen kill against Listeria monocytogenes. Nothing in here about Bacillus cereus. And, but what I think would happen here, um, cause what we're worried about is that interface between the, 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 uh, pasta and, and the Parmesan. Um, I think that there would be some migration of the salt concentration that would really also affect this too. 
Like I think it's I think it's super 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 low risk. Like probably on par with just you know adding Bacillus cereus directly onto the Parmesan. Um, and I, you know I agree with everything that that you mentioned. But I I just wanted to highlight like this is a great paper um, to explain some of the the science. But also I had no idea about this. Like I know Parmesan is has a, like is salty. I just didn't realize that it, it was that salty. Um, so um, yeah. Well, cool. This is this is a really good article, you know. And, and it's it's I I had done a consulting assignment, sort of similar to this, um, and then um, the guy never actually paid me for it, um, and so I was oh. going to say like, well, screw it, I'll just write this up and I'll publish it, and and I think I don't think I need to because I think that these guys <laughs> did it already and they did a better job than than I would have done. I mean, uh, yeah, I have to kick, I'll have to go back and find that and see if it maybe it's worth updating, uh, uh, you know, and, and interfacing with this. But it's this is yeah, this is a really nice piece of work. Will it, it is. Uh, Post. I couldn't find that on the J uh, the FPT website either, but we, it's at uh, Wisconsin uh, .edu uh, website, and so we'll we'll link to the the uh, we'll link to that. Great, great, um, awesome. Yeah, it's it, it, you know there, there's about forty papers that I have like on speed dial in my mind, and this is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's I I don't know why like I was just so enthralled by the by the presentation. I remember seeing him talk before I was a faculty member and I can't remember where it was, but I was like, man, this is like, this is the kind of work I want to do, right? Like this is, this is a solution. I think it started with, um, really trying to fight the, you know, the, the, the food code, um, requirements for refrigerating yep. cheese. Yep. And it was just like, yo, here's what we did and here's the science and leave us alone. And he was just, it was really a matter of fact, it was very compelling the, the talk. And, and I love that paper. So, um, so we got another one here about the instant pot um, and using it as an autoclave, and um, and uh, our friend uh, uh, Matt Stasewitz, um said, uh, um, "Hey, um, there was another article, and we will link to that article." Um, so said I heard Ben mention using uh, using instant pot as an autoclave. I thought I'd share this PLOS article where researchers uh, assess many home pressure cookers for exactly this use, um, and quote only the instant pot, however, was able to sterilize autoclave tester. Um, ampules of geobacillus thermophilus spores. Yeah, and we'll and we'll link to uh, Matt's uh, website uh, at the um, Illinois.edu uh, page. You know, he looks in this picture. He looks like he's about he's about twelve years old, which, oh. is, which is great because when he gets to be my age, he'll look younger. He'll love it. He'll love it. <laughs> um, yeah, Matt, so thanks, shout thanks. out to Matt. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening and thanks for sending the link. Um, all right. Uh, okay. So, uh, this is, uh, Twitter feedback on farm regulations. This comes from, uh, Twitter user deep bagels. And, uh, this is a, an article, um, uh, entitled the FDA needs to end its improper one size fits all approach to food safety. Um, uh, let's see, um, Congress and I'll read from the article and then you can jump in. Um, Congress directed the Food and Drug Administration to develop risk-based regulations for producing and harvesting of fruits and vegetables. The FDA, though, instead has taken a one-size-fits-all approach to to produce safety, failing to take into account different levels of risk across commodities. As a result, farmers who grow non-risky produce will have to unnecessarily comply with complex FDA regulations, and consumers will likely have to pay higher prices for that produce. The FDA needs to reverse course and follow the path path that Congress laid out to only regulate produce based on the risks associated with a given commodity. Ben, your thoughts? Yeah. Um, 
Oh, this is a this is a tough not, not a tough one. It's it's one of these these um, uh, situations that I think comes up uh, a lot. And those who are outside of the food safety world, um, and not not so much us that are in this sort of every day. I think it it, it looks on the surface like it's okay to say, you know what, um, Im- implementing food safety practices is really expensive, and we don't want food safety putting anybody out of business. So if you're a big company. Um, we're going to treat you one way, but if you're a small company, we're going to make some concessions for you and make it easier for you to comply, um, by reducing the, um, the requirements. And we see this and we have another, um, uh, another piece of feedback on, on eggs in a second about this. Um, we see this with like small producers and the, you know, where who's exempt and who's not. Um, and the thing that I worry about, I guess a little bit with this is yeah, you can be exempt from regulations and um, based on your size and, and what you're doing, um, but it, the, you shouldn't be exempt from trying to make that food safe, right? Like you can be so so maybe FDA's approach of a one size fits all. There's something to that argument, but if I'm if someone calls me up and says, "Hey, I, I'm I'm a small producer. I, I need help with this thing because a I don't want to make people sick, and B, my buyer is making me do it. Um, but you know, I'm a really small producer, and I don't think I should have to do it. I don't. I don't subscribe to that. I think that it's two. It's two separate conversations to me. Um, I really, you know, this will this will come across like callous and trite. I really don't care what the regulation is. Like for for the most part, the the regulation is here's the least. Um, you know, the lowest bar that we're going to accept. Um, but, but I, so, so I, 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 I kind of end up like not arguing so much when with someone who's like, wow, we shouldn't look at a one size fits all system. We should have different tiers. I'm like, okay, fine. But in the practicality side of things, if you're making food, you need to know how to make it in a way that doesn't make people sick. And, and it doesn't matter what size you are or what you're, what kind of food you're making. Um, and so being able to, assess risk, um, and, and, and make better management decisions doesn't, you know, that's not, it's not size dependent and and the regulation doesn't really take care of it anyway. (laughs) Yeah. And we should also mention that this uh, particular article comes to us from the heritage foundation, um, who are a conservative, um, voice, uh, in, in the debate. And so, you know, um, we can talk about, I mean, I certainly feel qualified to critique their thoughts on yeah. food safety. Uh, there's a lot of other positions that they hold um, that um, I don't agree with. So <laughs> anyway, let's just leave it at that. Right, right, right. Um, and, and yep. you know, and I think FDA doesn't have a one The other thing is I think that the premise is wrong. FDA does not have a one-size-fits-all approach to food safety. They right. they allow exemptions. And, and here's the thing. To your earlier point, I mean, the Heritage Foundation is all about capitalism and minimal regulations. Well, even if the FDA went away tomorrow, guess who would still be asking all of those growers, whatever size they were, to, to toe the line? It's the supermarkets. Yeah. And and the, and truthfully, they're the ones who should be right. Like they, they, um, right. Well, the FDA is is the is the minimum floor, right? Yeah, and then everything yeah. else builds above that. Yeah, and 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 don't don't get get me wrong in the comments that I'm I'm making here. I, I I'm not I'm not sort of arguing that there shouldn't be regulations. I, the the regulations are fine, um, but the regulations aren't aren't solely what makes food safe. It's it's all the other stuff. <laughs> well, in fact, in fact, Ben, I would, or I would I would submit to you here today, the regulations themselves are just words in books, 
and they Words have no, no power whatsoever. Well, that's not that's not true. But anyway, um, yeah, the regulations. You can have all the regulations in the world, but if nobody follows them, they don't. They're not worth uh, a crap. So yeah, right, right, yeah, absolutely. Um, I um, yeah, yeah. All right, moving on. Moving on, Uh, moving on. So uh, next bit of feedback uh, comes uh, from somebody who says you can read my message but not my name. Uh, This is a longtime longtime, uh, listener and feedbacker. Um, And I forget if he has a... I don't think he has a. He probably he has a nick. We're gonna we're gonna give him a new dick. All right, new nickname. Uh, deep deep uh, deep water. Okay. Oh, deep. Well, isn't deep water uh, uh, deep uh, deep deep chapin? <laughs> am I get am I getting them correct? Am I getting oh, confused? Oh well, this is this is a friend of deep chapin. Maybe, maybe. Uh, anyway, deep, deep electrolyzed. Anyway, we'll, re- we'll read the thing. Anyway, um, so uh, as always, I've been enjoying the pod. Cast, yes. so mm-hmm. you know already mm-hmm. it gets a oops. My bell is uh, impinged. There we go. Um, uh, recently, I had a hydroponic grower reach out to me about this product, and it's uh, we'll link to it. Uh, it is uh, and 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 the uh, the, the the clip uh, in the in the in the on the website that he questions is he says. Um, the, uh, this is the the questionable clip art and the quotes like electrolyzed water could change the face of home the home <laughs> cleaning market at least to the savvy. The savvy, savvy, only the savvy. And savvy is misspelled, I think. Uh, savvy has two Vs and one A, right? Um, it does. Uh, make your own sanitizer in the time it takes to make toast. This water is not for drinking. It's for cleaning. And boy, does it clean. <laughs> So, so, so deep, uh, deep water says, uh, yeah, this, this, uh, this rings some alarm bells. Uh, but to be honest, I'm having trouble navigating my way around their bad copy and links to government sites that they provide to sort, to sort out whether this works or not. Uh, tossing some salt and tap water into this gizmo to make an effective sanitizer for a produce operation seems too good to be true. Hey, yeah, there you go. But maybe it isn't, even if it does work. I'm not sure that you wouldn't save more money by just buying your sanitizer from a well-known company. Thoughts? So I'll give my thoughts and I'll let you jump in. Um, uh, so electrolyzed water has been studied a long time. And if you type uh, electrolyzed water microbiology into a Google Scholar search, you'll see there's a there's a quite a bit of literature out there. Um, uh, for sure, this website is overselling it. Um, uh, there's a lot of interest in these kind of technologies. So, for example, um, I am currently part of a project that was funded. Um, uh, well, it was written by uh, by Deep T. Salvi, uh, who, who uh, you guys stole away from us. She's a, she was a, 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 yeah. a, a, a research associate, uh, a research assistant professor. Anyway, at Rutgers and then North Carolina State hired her away to, for a faculty position, so good for her. And, and, and her the grant that uh, she wrote, that she was the PI on, uh, basically looks at um, – the uh, the idea of using plasma activated water, right? So you take water, you expose it to to plasma, which is the fourth state of matter, and it basically generates um, free radicals uh, ions in the in the water, which then are antimicrobial. And we're using that for uh, hydroponically growing basil um, as a as a test system. And so there's there's quality aspects of it. There's micro aspects. I'm helping with the micro aspects. There's a whole of plasma engineering. We have folks at Drexel who are part of the project who do to plasma stuff. We have some basil growing. People people that are on the project as well. Um, so bottom line is I think that um, uh, he's right to be skeptical, but um, and they are definitely overselling it. Um, but uh, on the other hand, um, there's probably some value um, to the technology or the idea in general, but obviously the devil's in the details and what's the stability of the product and what, what concentrations does it generate and what does it cost and what's the cost versus alternative technologies, all of that comes to bear. I, so this is where... 
the, the you you nailed the cost aspect mm. um and i you know so i this is another like reaching back into history i i when i was a grad student back at the university of guelph i got called over to um uh, former, well, probably still mentor, but uh, not listener of the show, Gord Surgeon, who I've talked about um, in, in the past. Um, and he uh, was a president of, a, I don't know exactly how this situation worked, but it was like some partnership between the University of Guelph and the Ministry of Agriculture and Food and Rural Affairs uh, called uh, Ontario Agri-Food Technology or something like that. It was like, a, you know, some... Uh, how do we help uh, ag- agriculture and food businesses start up and, and do stuff in, in technology? <laughs> um, mm. Anyway, so 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 Gord said, "Hey, can you come over? I got a food safety question. Um, can you come talk to someone who wants to um, you know make electrolyzed water and sell it to um, to the food service industry and to farmers for as sanitizer?" And had a lot of papers, and as you said, like there's a lot of good. Um, data that that, that's on efficacy but the question came down to cost and and in that case it was some unit that that was like 13 or fifteen thousand dollars um and that someone would buy in a restaurant and then they would just make sanitizer out of it um and you know there were some consumables that they had to pay for every month but it was like you know would someone in a restaurant purchase this i'm like you know what i don't think so because i can buy for you know, a hundred dollars a month, like ten times the amount of sanitizer that I'm going to need from uh, you know it, it, uh, in bulk, um, and so this this one I looked up this uh, specific product. This is called the Ecolox Tech 240 system. Um, the uh, deep deep water uh, deep Chapin Junior um, gave us a, a website. Uh, didn't have any cost, so I found it somewhere else. I could lease this one in my home for $175 a month. Uh, I don't think I'm going to do that, Don. I think no? it's too expensive. I think I, for $175 a month, I can also lease a car. <laughs> um, not a good, not a great car. But That's I not going to clean and sanitize your home. It's not. No, it's not. Um, so, is it effective? Yeah, I think I think it is. Is it worth one hundred seventy five dollars a month? No, to me, maybe it is mm-hmm. to, to someone else. Um. So, all right, moving on, yeah, moving so, on. So, next next bit of feedback. So, this one, uh, fortunately, there was a delay because the original message said, "Don't reveal my name or message on the air." And then I'm like, "Hey, yeah, thanks. This is great. We're gonna we're gonna talk about this on the podcast." And then I'm like, "Oh wait, he said don't reveal the content. Don't do it." I had a subsequent follow up email, and he said it's fine. So, so we'll call this user uh, Deep Law, uh, and he says, uh, "Don and Ben, this week I attended a PCQI training, and the trainer said something I wanted your take on. The comment was that Bill Marler was the trainer." worst enemy. I was a little surprised when I heard this, but I thought I remembered reading in Barf Blog that Doug Powell doesn't like him either. <laughs> Here's the thing. Doug doesn't like a lot of people, and, and yeah. the people that Doug likes might change day to day. So just, and I know he doesn't listen, and he, he probably doesn't have a very high opinion of me right now, but, you know, anyway, that's that's life. Um, uh, okay, uh, uh, let's see. So this this person said he he mentioned that he thought that Bill capitalized on companies making food safety mistakes, and then he did it just to get rich and now he's living with a fat wallet in Seattle preying on food companies. Where's my wallet, Ben? <laughs> um, the, the canonical line. Um, 
So, um, uh, so on the one hand, I can see how someone in the food industry could interpret that what Bill does is pretty merciless and just trying to make money. On the other hand, seems like Bill's an advocate for families, et cetera. And so, yeah, and so for for sure. And and we we've had Bill as a guest on the podcast. He did a, he had lousy quality audio, but uh, it was a great episode. He was very honest with us as he always is. And in the middle of the episode, his daughter came and asked him for money, and he needed to find his wallet. Um, Get my so wallet. That, yeah. So. So great, great, great episode title, and thanks to Bill for being on the podcast. And I'll also share, um, without revealing details, when I was um, the president of IAFP, uh, we uh, we invited Bill to give one of our keynote lectures. And I had somebody from the industry whose company gives money to us every year uh, who wrote me a message, a letter saying, I'm very disappointed that IAFP um, has, you know, brought Mr. Marler in uh, and, you know, just because he's, he's, you know, dangerous to the food industry and, and we don't like him and he's just out to make money. And I sent a very polite response back. I, I think I asked you and Doug for help in, in formulating that response. And I ran it by the other board members and our executive director. And I basically said, thanks for your opinion. Um, if you choose not to give money, um, we'll, we'll understand, but we stand by our decision. And so, you know, here, here's the thing. I mean, yes, Bill um, does has gotten quite wealthy by doing what he does. But if the food industry didn't screw up, he wouldn't be able to make that money. And he does spend time going around the country um, on his own dime giving talks about food safety. And he, and he will do that. And he gives a really good talk. And in this talk, he says, here's how you don't get sued by me. Now, does, does he have a big ego? Yes. Does he have a lot of money? Yes. Um, are those two things well-deserved? I would say probably yes. And, and, I, and I like Bill and I, and I enjoy talking with him. Um, but, you know, that's, and that's the career that he's made for himself. Um, I've made a different career for myself, but I, I, I have no... Um, I, I, I think that Bill fulfills an important role in the food safety system, and I'm glad that he does it. I, yeah, absolutely agree. And I think, um, you know, one, one of the things that I, I always come back to when, when people challenge not just, you know, Bill as an individual and Bill's role, but, but other um, civil lawsuits in, in food safety where, where people are like, ah, oh, this is just ambulance chasing. Um, in in so many, and you and I have both uh, you know served as expert witnesses, um, and and when you're when you really get into some of the details of what happens to someone in a in a serious way with foodborne illness, like you know many of the cases that Bill takes on and others take on, these aren't um, uh, usually like a you know norovirus and and a little bit of diarrhea um, for for a day or so. It's it's the very serious. Foodborne illness outcomes, the long-term sequela, the um, you know the uh, uh, HUS cases, the deaths, um, the long, long-time hospitalizations, um, and those are there are real costs associated with this. Like, like it's not a. It yeah, you know, it's not. It's even not just like a that's that sucks and that's terrible for that person, but but someone who um, you know because of the healthcare system that exists in the U.S., someone saddled with millions of dollars uh, in in some cases of uh, of um, of healthcare costs and long term disability because of something they ate and that 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 they might have eaten that cantaloupe or that peanut butter um a hundred times before and it never made them sick and something happened that was different that that one time and i i really um i i really value bill's contribution to the world of food safety because that 
those individuals don't really have a voice if there isn't civil litigation, right? Like, a um, who's, and, and, and I understand, um, you know, and being around this world, at least adjacently, that sometimes it's a, um, insurance company that's trying to recoup their costs. And, and I, I mean, I, I, I get that. Like that's, that's part of this, right. Is how do we, how do we manage healthcare issues and keep it? So our premiums, you know, ourselves don't go up, uh, because of foodborne illness, uh, across the U S and, and so, um, you know, I, I really, I really do think that, um, you know, my take on it is that, uh, it's a, it's a necessary drive, uh, forward for food safety bill. In fact, he was quoted in the, the book that I mentioned earlier in the podcast. Um, he said that something I'll paraphrase this a little bit, but it was something like, um, civil litigation is kind of a blunt instrument or a blunt tool to advance food safety. It's not yep. the best way to do it. Yep. For sure. Um, but it, but it does, but it, but it has impacts. Um, so yeah, uh, appreciate the, um, the message and, and, uh, and I, it's all part, it's all part of the process. Yeah. It's all part of the same. It's all part of our, our world. I don't think you can, you can't ignore what Bill does and what other lawyers do, um, because it's, it's important. Yeah. As immortalized on, uh, that, uh, famous TV show, it's all in the game, yo. It's all in the game, yo. It's in the game. It's in the game. It's in the game. Um, all right. So, so here's the thing, Ben, I know you have a hard ish out, um, I do. and I have a call recorder that may or may not be recording, but is definitely not recording the time. So I know we started approximately at one thirty. 131, I think it was. Yes, 131. Uh, uh, 131, 132, whatever it whatever takes. Whatever it takes. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I know you said that you, and I'm happy to keep rolling through these, but you're the one with the, with the time, and, you're, and you said you had some other stuff that, were, that was not feedback that you wanted to talk about. So. I do, I do. Let's keep rolling through. I have my, uh, I have my, my heart out is not for another 40 minutes. So we got, okay. we got to. Cool. So uh, the next one. So this is something that comes from a longtime listener and uh, feedbacker, uh, Deep Crimson. And uh, Deep Crimson sent us a link to this really cool thing um, called the Foldscope. Yeah, this is and cool. The fold scope is an ultra affordable paper microscope, and we will we will definitely link to uh, the website that has this. This is so it's foldscope.com. Um, this is astounding, right? So what they w- decided to do was let's design an a portable, durable microscope that has basically similar quality to research microscopes. Um, And then because it's durable and it's portable and it's relatively affordable, um, you can order them for, uh, for, for, for classrooms. You can get, you can get a deluxe kit. That's an individual kit. You can get classroom kits. Um, It's, it's just really cool. I mean, this 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 is just. Uh, I mean, this is just amazing that they can they can make this and they do this and it's just. I just this is just gives me like warm fuzzy feelings all over. Yeah, and so um, I was um, I was really excited by this when I when I saw it because I thought this is so you know my kids don't listen to the podcast, um, but uh, one of them for their birthday is going to get a fold scope. Um, pro- probably Jack. It, it's a, it, it's like twenty nine bucks. Well, it's thirty nine thirty nine ninety nine plus for the deluxe ten, kit. Yeah, with a ten dollar off summer code right now. Right, use summer twenty nineteen apparently. Um, so yeah, uh, so uh, but it's got a hundred and forty times lens. 
Um, it's got some super cool, um, features of like being able to connect on, um, an iPhone to take pictures and also to illuminate like, so, so yeah, um, I didn't know anything about this. It was, it looked awesome. So we're going to, we're going to grab one of these. Cool. Um, and then I'll report back. We'll make it in the podcast, uh, sometime in the fall. Cool. Um, challenge make a podcast make a challenge make a uh, a microscope well speaking of speaking of challenges i did i did pitch this idea to the um uh dubai friday guys and they did not respond <laughs> oh they you you challenged them on a make a microscope yeah yeah but it's okay i mean it's uh, you know i got i got i got something in the tank uh, for next time when i'm when i'm in chicago or when whatever so cool all right they don't listen to the show of course of course not <laughs> okay so um uh, FDA press release on frozen berries. Now this is, this is still ongoing. Um, but, um, this is, so I, and I don't want to reveal too much, but basically you and I have been talking with some folks in the industry about frozen berries and FDA's original statement on frozen berries. So do you have anything you want to say about this? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so, uh, just to give a little bit of background, um, there's a, a sampling assignment. So FDA over the last, um, I, I I guess I became aware of this about a, a decade ago. FDA um, picks uh, specific foods that they regulate and targets to go find out um, what kind of microbial contamination might be there, and and they're very specific about it. Um, so recently, the first one that I became aware of was was around cantaloupes and listeria and packing facilities. Um, there was some sampling of tomatoes before that, I think. Um, and, uh, then there was avocados and there was cilantro and other, um, fresh herbs and, and spices. Uh, and, and so one that's, that's ongoing right now is, um, with frozen berries, uh, specifically frozen berries and looking for, uh, hep A and norovirus. Um, and, and so it, it, you know, without, without, I guess, going into too much detail of the stuff that, that we've been talking about with, with, um, you know, with, with the industry folks, um, it's, I, I think where this is coming from, and, and again, we haven't, not, neither of us have talked to anybody at FDA about this, but I think where it's coming from is, is some, uh, European outbreaks, um, linked to, to norovirus and, uh, one really high profile, um, berry linked out frozen berry linked outbreak, um, here in the U S that, that actually ended up being frozen pomegranate, um, seeds, uh, as the, as the vehicle. And, and I, um, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fan of let's, let's put some resources into knowing more about what's out there so we can dedicate, uh, and prioritize, uh, our risk management decisions. Um, uh, I think that there's, um, maybe not a lot of detail in the in in the announcement um, about how how decisions will be made and what exactly what people are looking for and how because of the complex system in the industry of um, sometimes importing fresh berries and then freezing them sometimes importing I, uh, individually quick frozen berries um, in bulk and then repackaging them, um, here in the U S. Um, there, there, I think there's some concerns, different concerns from water quality in, um, uh, imported frozen berries and imported fresh berries versus, um, those that are produced here, uh, from a, from a, a viral, uh, standpoint. And so, so I think where, where you and I have been, um, you know, at least chatting is, is, uh, um, working with the industry to, to support them to ask questions about the details. Um, and that's, uh, I think that's where kind of where it's at. Well, and, gonna, and yeah. yeah, what, what we, I, I was trying to look for a, um, 
uh, a link to the so the 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 original page FDA put up um, got uh, got changed. The, the language on the page got changed, and I was looking for the original language. It wasn't archived by uh, the. Um, uh, Wayback Machine, the, the Internet Archive, uh, but there are some other pages out there uh, that 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 provide the text from the earlier update. And and the issue is that um, the so the, as the as the assignment currently reads, it just explains why FDA is doing this. In the in the earlier FDA piece, FDA had some advice for consumers or, or gave had language for consumers about um, how to mitigate that risk, but there really there really wasn't it wasn't particularly well thought out. And I think it, this this gives you an example of why it's so it's the, it's really exciting to be in academics because you get to work with people in the industry and you get to work with people in the government and you and you really you really have to appreciate both sides right you have to understand the FDA perspective you have to also understand the industry's perspective and it's really interesting when you get to kind of be inside the room and watch that back and forth where the FDA or a regulatory agency does one thing the industry pushes back and and to see where that where the the, the ball settles in in those uh, in those uh, debates, and so it's just that's that's probably that's probably all we should say about that. But uh, we'll link to uh, a, a website um, from Iowa State University, um, and then we'll also link to the, um, uh, the the details of the exact exact sampling uh, that FDA is going to do and and and, and how they're going to do it. And, and yeah, I'm really I, you know my prediction, Ben, is we're going to find about one percent of all samples are positive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and my my other prediction is I think we're going to find, and this is the, it comes back to that imported versus domestic side of things. I think we're going to find that um, if if we're able to delineate um, uh, source of it, that uh, we're more likely to find positives from uh, regions where um, hepatitis A is endemic and um, water sanitation is, uh, and, and the um, hu- human waste and water sanitation interface is more likely to happen um, as, as opposed to stuff that's maybe frozen here. Uh, or grown here, um, yeah, and and, we'll, and we will definitely link to the uh, Euro surveillance article from 2015, uh, which is entitled "Foodborne Diseases Associated with Frozen Frozen Berries Consumption: A Historical Perspective, European Union, 1983 to 2013." They've had a lot of outbreaks with these in Europe, much much fewer outbreaks in the United States, but boy, a lot of outbreaks in Europe. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and, and yeah, and, and I think that there are regions specifically where those, where those products are coming from that are, oh, yeah. uh, that, that have been, uh, linked multiple times. Well, and I, you know, we, we have our, uh, norovirus in frozen berries paper, uh, where we recreated the, uh, strawberry outbreak in Germany that came from berries sourced from China. And, uh, yeah, so a really, really interesting issue to, to definitely keep watching on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah. Um, so, uh, um, so additional feedback uh, here from a uh, long time, and this is an old one now, but a uh, long time uh, listener and frequent contributor, uh, Deep New England. Um, in episode 182, uh, we talked about food waste and Deep New England highlighted um, something that um, that we didn't talk about. Um, and I really haven't explored too much other than I know a little bit about them, which is, and so our, ours was talking about food waste and food pantries and um, uh, the stigma of providing 
um, ex, uh, quote expired or past best before date products to people in, um, in food pantry situations. And some pantries from our experience not wanting to do that, um, because of, um, you know, the, the idea of not wanting to give food away that, that they would not consume themselves. Um, and, and not contributing to additional food waste and also maybe contributing to more food disparity issues that for not food safety reasons, but for like perception and quality issues. Anyway, deep new England mentioned, um, that there are a whole bunch of discounted food resale stores. And we, we actually, uh, I think there's one here in Durham, um, that one of my uh, former students, uh, highlighted me to, but I haven't uh, gone to this and this is a salvage grocery store where, um, this is the trade that they do is they'll purchase, um, either close to, uh, the end of the best before dates or, um, overstock of products and, and sell it at discount prices and sometimes really, really discounted prices, um, as, as an op- opportunity. So it's, you know, people still having access to that food and, and being able to, um, to purchase it if they, if, if they wish, uh, as opposed to being given to them and, and that's the, you know, sort of forced stigma of, uh, of, um, uh, you know, wrong, um, past date, uh, stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a, this is another great, great option to highlight. Yeah. And so, and, and deep new England sent us a link to the extreme bargains online marketplace, but she also sent us a link, um, to a Smithsonian magazine article, which is not working, but we'll see if we can find that. It's, it's basically, uh, what does the text say? It says, um, uh, the former president of Trader Joe's is into it, um, and there's a Smithsonian Magazine article um, which has a, some, a headline a, a approximated by this new grocery store sells only expired food. Again, having trouble resolving that link, but we'll see what we can find. Yep, I got it to work. I will text it oh. to you right now. Cool, cool, cool. cool. Um, so where else do we need to go here? Uh, Let's let you want to do the next one in the list? Um does cold water actually destroy bacteria? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Okay, yes. This is a good one. Go. So this is a this is a long one, at least based on my response. Um, oh, and this is um, this is actually this is not listener feedback from the show. This is just somebody who who contacted me. Um, so I won't reveal any details. Um, uh, the listener, the listener, the the, the the random human from the planet who does not listen to the podcast says, I found your name quoted while I was looking for an answer to a question about bacteria and handwashing. Um, my question arises from a statement on another report on handwashing, usually from a usually reputable reporting source that's which said that bacteria cannot live in water and that water itself causes them to break up. Go pop were the exact words. I thought this was strange given they live in our bodies, which are a watery environment and are also found in contaminated water. And then, you know, the listener goes on to think about detergents. Um, and then again, and then, and then returns to the point of cold water versus warm water for washing. And, you know, the, the person asks, can you shed any light for me? And, Oh, boy, can I shed some light, right? So this is why I, I went with, off of this really long response. So, so first of all, we've published research that shows that uh, cold water is just as effective as warm water. Um, and, and, you know, for sure that's, um, you know, something that um, uh, we can link to my article on, on water temperature. But I want to spend a little bit of time and talk about this statement 
about bacteria, you know, go pop in water. Because I, I, you know, when we do experiments in the laboratory, we use buffers. We use dilution buffers to um, dilute bacteria. To When we're sampling food, we take the food, we mix it with some dilution buffer, we massage the food in the buffer, we liberate the bacteria from the surface of the food, and then we take that buffer, we, we might filter it to get remove the particles, and then uh, the bacteria that remain, uh, we, we, we plate them, we put them onto agar media, and then the the bacteria that are there form colonies and the, you know, the, the cells grow and they grow in number and eventually they form visible colonies that you can see with your eye. And there's a reason why we use dilution buffers instead of plain water. And the reason why is that bacteria are subject to that osmotic stress. So if you put a bacterial cell um, into pure water, it will experience some osmotic stress. Now, it turns out that they even the gram-negative ones without uh, without a, a cell wall or without a you know the the, the gram-positive membrane, even those gram-negative organisms will survive. I dug into this. Because we, um, uh, I just submitted a paper finally um, uh, to Journal of Food Protection, basically looking at the interaction of the diluent um, and looking at uh, two common diluents, um, uh, phosphobuffered saline and uh, dilute peptone, um, and plain water. And it turns out that. Um, th- it matters which one you use, and it matters whether you're uh, the temperature and it, uh, that you're incubating it at, and it also matters um, uh, the relative humidity of the environment. And I don't want to I don't want to spoil it because uh, we, we can talk about it when the paper gets published. But um, I I was really this was some int- very interesting work uh, that my uh, master student uh, Matt Igo did, um, uh, and now he's he did a great job with it, and I, I finally got off my butt and got it submitted for publication. So, uh, but this whole idea that we have to use dilution buffers. Turns out it's not really completely true. Bacteria do survive in water just fine, which is why we have problems with salmonella in the surface water in some mm-hmm. parts of the country. And um, but yeah, but you can, if you go back to the early scientific literature where you know the stuff is you know scan PDFs, um, you'll find that people have done experiments and and yeah, and they, and they get better survival if they use these dilution buffers. But but they're not without consequence. Um, and and again, I, this is this is a whole area of research that. I'm really getting interested in, which is the interaction between temperature and relative humidity and the, the dilution buffer and the food environment. And it's just, it's, it's, it's connecting a bunch of different things we've been working on for a while. And it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting couple of years as we begin to explore this. Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing that I, you know, I'm really glad you kind of did that deep dive and talk about, um, where, where that statement might have come from because I think when we think about um, drinking water, hand washing water, surface water, um, you know, we, we call it, you know, it's water is water. And even when we look at potable water, um, there are lots of, you know, minerals that can be in that water that are also going to um, affect it. So, so like just pure, pure water, like, I mean, talking deionized water just doesn't really exist in our, in the, like in the bacterial world so much, right? It's not, doesn't exist in our environment. So, um, so, so that, you know, kind of part, at least partly can explain how, um, you know, how bacteria live in the surface water and live in, um, wash water tanks. Like we saw, um, in, uh, you know, in many, many places and many outbreaks, um, in, and our facilitated movement around with water. Um, so yeah, those, um, this is good, really good clarification and great, great message to get us down this path. 
And I will say too, the original page um, that the, the the person provided was a, a link to the Tested.com website, which I guess is affiliated with um, MythBusters, maybe. Um, but it, it and it's from 2013, um, and it talks about a study that was done at Vanderbilt, um, and, and it talks about hot water and antibacterial soap. I agree that hot water, um, well, it doesn't kill germs because if it was hot enough to kill germs, it would scald you. Uh, but water temperature doesn't matter. But I I do believe from research that. That we and others have done is that antibacterial uh, soaps are more effective, but that's, again, we've hashed that over past shows before. What I'm looking at right now is to try to figure out whether the Vanderbilt study was actually published, because I, I don't think it was, otherwise we would have probably cited it. So um, let's see. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not finding whether it's cited or not. We'll keep, we'll keep looking for that. But Anyway, so that gets us uh, a little bit caught up on uh, listener feedback. We still have some more to go, um, but are you? Do you want to keep going? What's uh, what's your what's your schedule? I, I'm I'm good. We can I, we can keep going because the things that I want to talk about are relatively quick. So let's bang them. Let's bang these off. all. All right, let's bang them out. Um, quick, quick hits. All quick right. Hits. Uh, so uh, um, uh, let's see. Uh, oh, this person is a repeat emailer, so he is now uh, no longer using the website, <laughs> so, <laughs> which is fine. Uh, but if you use the website, then it puts the keywords in the thing so that uh, we're sure to talk about it. But um, anyway, uh, so uh, Deepfly, we'll call him Deepfly this time. I don't know what his nickname was before. Um, uh, m- my name is Deepfly, and, <laughs> and I'm a subscriber to your podcast. I've emailed you a couple times before. You answered my questions. I really appreciate it. Well, that's why we're here, uh, Mr. Fly. Um, my question this time is about the splash that results from hand washing. For example, when I wash my hands, I often feel small bits of splash from the water or and or soap on exposed area of my skin. I was wondering whether or not any such splash poses any danger of leaving germs on the skin that can be then transmitted to others. I'm not worried about myself, but wet, rather whether any such splash, even if it can't be seen, but might contain enough germs that could be transferred to others. If I later touch my arms and face or clothing, uh, could I transmit uh, germs? Um, well, so the first question is, you know, well, first point is you probably don't have pathogens on your hands unless you have diarrhea, and so probably low risk there. But anyway, we'll, we'll keep going, and then we'll, we'll circle back around to the answer. Um, okay, and then next question. Um, I know this may sound like an absurd question since no one I ever really no one ever really talks about this, but it's been a real concern for me. So I thought I would ask a microbiologist instead of just continuing to wonder. Uh, I usually rinse off my skin where I feel the splash, but I suspect it's probably unnecessary. Also, are small insects like fruit flies or other smaller ones that may crawl or onto possibly germy areas, likely transmitters of germs. I've read that fruit flies could be especially could could be especially because they're known to be attracted to fecal matter. And I, I think uh, house flies are, are attracted to feces. Fruit flies, as it says right in the name, are attracted to fruit. Um, however, what I can gather uh, from what I can gather, it's not known whether or not they're actually serious vectors of disease. Uh, I was curious about them and other types of even more smaller, smaller flying and crawling insects that I sometimes have in my home. Um, yes. So, um, so first of all, uh, the, uh, again, the water splashing question, I think that there is some risk, right? Whether that's water that's aerosolizing from a toilet, as we talked about, I think famously, uh, in our show at Geneseo, uh, from rain, there's been research that's looked at rain that hits the soil, um, and, and splashes potential pathogens from the soil up onto plants. Uh, we, you, we've talked about um, uh, chicken washing earlier in the episode and, and several other times as well. All of those can transmit microorganisms. But 
Again, I think that the risks from washing one's own hands is relatively small because remember, you probably don't have, unless you have diarrhea, you probably don't have pathogens on your hands anyway. Um, so again, uh, it's, it's, a, it's not a zero, zero number because the number is never zero, right? But it's a really small number. Um, now, the question about insects is really good. Um, there's uh, some research that in one of my uh, uh, papers on speed dial uh, is a paper by Bob Buchanan and others that showed that if you took uh, pathogenic E. coli, uh, you inoculated it onto a surface of an apple, you cut that apple so the E. coli could begin to grow on that apple, you expose the apple to fruit flies, you let those fruit flies walk on that infected spot on that apple, and then you let those fruit flies fly to another piece of fruit could you find E. coli on the second piece of fruit? And the answer is yes, right? Now, the, the, the question is, what's the, what's the dose? What's the transfer rate? And it's low, but it's not, it's not zero. So, so yeah, so insects can transmit microorganisms. Uh, Houseflies do uh, fly around on poop, and they can for sure transmit. Uh, I'm less worried about fruit flies, um, unless you're around an apple orchard that is infected with pathogenic E. coli. So, uh, but yeah, the, again, the risk is not zero, um, uh, but it's relatively low. I would, I, my opinion, this is only my opinion, is fruit flies would be a lower risk than uh, house flies. So basically, yeah, if something that likes to land on poop is not good um, and uh, things that land on fruit uh, would be less risky. Yep. Yep. And uh, the only thing I'll add is uh, a link to a paper from 2005 where um, not one that I have on speed dial, but one that I remember reading from Emerging Infectious Diseases uh, from Gordon Nichols uh, entitled Fly Transmission at Campylobacter, or as it's probably pronounced in the UK since the UK paper, Campylobacter. Um, and uh, uh, and and uh, um, Nichols makes the case that um, the seasonality of flies may be um, uh, one of the ways that we explain the high, higher uh, numbers of Campylobacter um, infections in the UK um, because it's you know sort of identified epidemiologically as as a um, you know uh, a risk factor. But and this is one of the things that um, the the great and and late uh, Pete Snyder talked about quite a bit on the old food safe listserv. Um, if we're worried about flies, um, we're worried about um, sporadic uh, illnesses, and they're they're li- largely not drivers, uh, likely not drivers in uh, in outbreaks. Um, and so, um, yeah, just a, an interesting paper uh, to take a look at to look at the correlation between um, uh, flies and and really just collect some of that uh, that data in one place of uh, the transmission uh, potential. And I, you know, it's one of the, one of those cool ones. So we'll we'll link to that as well. All right. Um, yeah. So um, this is a really uh, long one here. So this is um, so we got we got um, some really actually this turned out to be a really interesting uh, side digression. We got an interesting question about from Deep Crimson about um, uh, inter- inactivation of quaternary ammonium compounds by cotton cloths. And were you part of that email discussion? I was not. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I missed so, out on this one. Yeah. So this was. So this is uh, Deep Crimson is a person who works in University Food Service. We had a really interesting long back and forth about the safety of. Uh, well, what 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 has what we have discovered is that. Um, uh, quaternary ammonium compounds are one kind of sanitizer, and there's been some research that's shown that quaternary ammonium compounds. Um, 
uh, bind to or are rendered inactive by cotton cloth. So if you if you have a bucket full of quat sanitizer and you put a cotton rag or cotton cloth into that sanitizer and then you measure the concentration of the sanitizer, it's going to be less because of that cotton rag. And so uh, this is known. It's been There's been some published papers on it. We're actually going to hopefully work on it this summer with basically just doing some real simple extension kind of work where we basically make up sanitizer solutions and, you know, small volumes and then put different volumes of cotton cloths and then measure the sanitizer, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, binding by that um, to try to figure out what's going on. Um, it turns out that we also um, use the same kind of sanitizer uh, at Rutgers and we, we te- we'll go and we'll test the, the concentration of the active uh, quaternary ammonium compounds in the in the, the sanitizer solution. Um, so, but there's a lot of a lot of research looking at various different solutions to this. Um, there are um, <clears throat> there are some special cloths that you can get that will change color. They, they're less binding of quats, and then they change color if the the sanitizer solution is adequate or not. Um, well, we ordered some of those for use in our dining halls, and what we discovered was that people. Um, were basically didn't know that they were expensive special cloths. They look kind of like disposable ones. So people were throwing them out, and so we went back to using the cotton ones, even though they're less effective. Um, and so, um, yeah, look for look for more more research from us to come on that. And then we're gonna I'm gonna throw a whole bunch of links um, into the into the show notes here that's that will talk about um, all of this, including there's a really good. Um, uh, basically, uh, a mini review by um, Chuck Gerba on uh, quaternary ammonium biocides efficacy uh, and in application uh, that basically provides a really good uh, lit review, recent lit review on on the, the topic and and what the actual issues are. So, yeah, so interesting stuff. Cool, cool, and that's good. The, you know, this is the type of stuff that um, you know Chuck's uh, mini lit review and, and the work that you're doing that um, can really inform uh, you know the policy decisions and stuff like the food code which is you know where deep crimson highlights it's it, you know I mean, quaternary ammonia has got to be the most um, commonly used uh, sanitizer in food service and those um, facilities that are regulated under the code Um Cool. Yeah, actually, actually, I think what I'm going to do, because there's a lot of links here, um, uh, I think I'm just going to link to the Gerba article. And if, if people want to follow up, um, you know, and or need help um, finding those, just ask us because it's it's a lot of links, and I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily. If you just want to read one thing, read read Gerba's review, and that'll that'll get you sorted on the science. Perfect. Good. All right. Well, okay. So we're down. We, we may not get to all the feedback. We got most of it done. Maybe we'll transfer a few of these over. We, and if people really want their questions answered, we haven't done it. Um, they can check with us again. Um, <laughs> but, no, we're going to, there's, well, there's only four more and we'll, I promise we'll roll them over. We'll roll them over. Okay. So, but I got two, I got two things that I want to, I want to talk Go about. For it. So one is, uh, when we, when you and Linda and I talked uh, a couple of weeks ago, we sort of alluded to a video, um, that, uh, that I would had been making and was going to come out and it, <laughs> and it came yes. out. And, and so, 
Um, what came out was, uh, so the, the video was, um, could the Stanley cup spread disease? Uh, I was able to, um, very successfully, at least in my mind, um, make a crossover between my, uh, you know, two of the three things that I really focus on, or maybe two of the four things that I focus on in, in life, um, food safety and hockey. And then the other two things are like beer and my family. Um, and so, well, and beers in this too. So three out of the four, my family just isn't in this one. Well, your kids, uh, you, you could have had, this could have been, you could have been, this could have been the, the quadruple crown, Ben. It oh, could have been, a, what do you, what's one more than a hat trick? Um, it, you know, a hat trick plus an one. An albatross or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, and you, your kids, your kids who also play hockey could have been in the video. Could have been here. Could have been here. True, true. So anyway, it was, this is a, um, so, so this is a different video or different thing that we, than, than what I had done in the past. So, um, how it started was, uh, a, a question from, um, two folks independently in, in new services or in my college about things that we could do, uh, around food safety and hockey. And, and so I came up with, with a couple of things. One was, um, what we settled on, on, um, you know, using this common cup and food that goes in there and how does it get clean and, and should you kiss it and all that, that stuff. Um, and the other one that didn't make it, there were two others that didn't make it. The other one was, um, there's a tradition in Detroit where, um, when the playoffs used to be two rounds and you needed to win eight games to win the, uh, to win the Stanley cup. Um, the tradition was, um, that, uh, a, someone who was like a seafood, uh, seller, a seafood, uh, a fine seafood, um, uh, fishmonger, uh, would, uh, throw a, uh, octopus on the ice cause it has eight legs. Oh and, yeah. Yeah. And so I wanted to maybe talk about the food safety aspect of carrying, um, you know, Vibrio in your pocket with, uh, with an octopus, but that didn't, it didn't fly. Uh, and the, the other piece, um, that didn't make it, but we may revisit this one is there was a really interesting outbreak of norovirus linked to, um, NBA national basketball association teams, um, that were traveling throughout the U S and, and, um, and the outbreak was linked to teams that were using common showers and cleaning and sanitation in those showers in the locker rooms. Um, and so I, I want to get to that one uh, eventually, but we focused on the Stanley cup. And so did this uh, two minute video. Um, it was like super produced and scripted and I'd not done something quite like this before. We also recorded it on the ice. Um, where I got to show off my skating and stopping and slap shot abilities. Um, and it was, it was just super fun. Um, and I think it turned out, um, it turned out great. And, uh, there was, um, it's, it's maybe not, not over yet. Cause every once in a while I still get a, I still get tagged, um, on Facebook, um, that this, you know, it's still out there. Um, and, but the original tweet that went out from NC state was, is up over, uh, 4,000 views on Twitter, which is probably the most viewed food safety video I've ever been part of. So, so well, it was kind of, it was cool. And I can tell everybody that you have over 10 likes on YouTube. So everybody should go, everybody who listens to the podcast should go on YouTube and like this video. Check it out. Um, yeah, 387 views on on the YouTube. Uh, and please. Oh, now it has 12 likes. Look at that. There we go. Look at that. It's just it's more more likes as we go. Um, really, uh, my favorite part is just that I didn't look super goofy uh, in my helmet and and skating, and I didn't fall. You didn't. So I did not. Okay. That, yeah. You have, you, have, you, have a, you have a independent corroboration of that. No, no. Like it was only my, but. I thought I would look goofier. Okay. Okay. Well, there you go. 
Yeah. You, you've properly calibrated your goofiness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, okay, the second thing that I wanted to highlight um, was uh, what I've been doing the last couple of days. And it is um, – it's something I'd never been to before. And it's a conference called um, oh, the Council of State and Territorial – Oh, Ep- yes. Austin. I want to hear about this. C-S-T-E. And so so here's here's how this happened. Um, listener, friend of the podcast, Michael Bazzacco from FDA um, – about four or five months ago said, Hey, uh, CSTE, uh, is this thing? Um, and it's going to be in your city and you should go, I'm coming. And I was like, I don't even know what CSTE is. Tell me about it. And he goes, well, it's all the epidemiologists, um, and, uh, get together and share practice, uh, um, updates, their, their position papers, um, that, that become, um, really like policy on how, epidemiology happens, how we define case, um, define cases, what becomes reportable. I didn't really know about this. It's, it's like, it's like CFP, but for epidemiologists Mm -hmm. and, um, and epidemiology, uh, for those who are listening who are not in the epidemiology world and are in the food safety world, um, there, I, you might be surprised. Uh, I was, uh, I was, I guess a little bit surprised. Uh, foodborne illness is just one little piece of this. There's uh, epidemiology of diabetes and measles. Measles is a big thing right now, Don. People are getting the measles. Huh. Uh, West Nile virus, um, you know, there's a lot of infectious diseases, but then there's also uh, chronic illnesses um, that that fall into this. And so, I uh, Monday morning, um, I, I I knew I knew Michael was going to be in town. I showed up, and I uh, I did something that I hadn't done before. Um, and so this is the this is officially the first time that Food Safety Talk um, and and Barf Blog uh, combined have been recognized as media outlets because uh, I applied for a press pass. Um, and I did so because, uh, for a couple of reasons, one is I didn't know if I was going to like this conference and I didn't want to become a member cause I'm not an epidemiologist. And I really just wanted to go listen to outbreaks. And let me tell you, if you like outbreaks, this conference is for you. This is outbreak junkie, like crack. So I, I'll highlight a couple that, uh, um, that, that we're going to talk about here, but, um, go to, and I'll, uh, a link to um, it, it, it's it's a little bit hard to find this, so um, I'm I'm going to link to the the program. We'll link to this in, in show notes. Um, but if you if you click on um, the links to infectious diseases and then you find the food safety ones, because um, there's lots of different infectious disease um, uh, I- examples, um, you'll you'll get to the to the good stuff, which is all of the exciting um, uh, outbreaks that we are interested in. So I went to something called the lightning session. And during this lightning session, there were 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 outbreaks were talked hmm. about in between 2 p.m. and 3.15 p.m. or really 3.30 p.m. on um, on Monday. So five-minute talks on um, really interesting things. And this is – so. So two I'm going to highlight from this session that I really um, th- thought about and um, and, and w- which led me to what I want to talk about next. But there was a really interesting outbreak at Campylobacter at a workplace cafeteria, which I don't know exactly what that is, but maybe that's like a 
um, uh, you know, a place that only the people that work there can eat at. Um, and this workplace cafeteria. In That's what I would guess. <laughs> yep. Uh, in August, 2018. So I don't have a workplace cafeteria here. So, but I, I think people that work in off, real offices, they have workplace cafeterias. Um, and so, okay. So a, a nice, uh, we'll, we'll link to this, this specific, the abstract of this outbreak. Um, and, uh, here's the situation we've got, um, uh, 30 people got sick. Um, uh, it was linked to Campylobacter and, um, how did, what, what was the food? Well, the food was a cheesesteak. Well, that was, that sounds interesting, right? But that's not the punchline, Don. The food was a cheesesteak that instead of having mayo on it, they had substituted chicken liver pate. And that chicken liver pate was undercooked, um, it, or at least prepared in a way that the, the chicken livers had been, had been undercooked. Um, and so, so this is like I, I've been um, I, I've been on the chicken liver pate bandwagon for a while. I'm really interested in this this topic area. I've been working with a couple of colleagues um, who uh, we haven't mentioned yet, but John uh, Lachansky and Anna Porofet um, at uh, USDA ARS on this. They they have just published a couple of papers um, on uh, chicken liver pate. Um, Making chicken liver pate and salmonella. Anyway, this is I wouldn't have known about this outbreak if I didn't go to CSTE. And this would be this this is kind of the end of it, right? Like you as an epidemiologist, the this information was maybe out there, maybe it was in local newspaper, probably not, because this is all this is an outbreak that happened in an internal setting. Um, but it's a it's another one of these these outbreaks linked to uh, a factor uh, you know a risk factors under cooking uh, in our cooking livers, and and this is like just one of these like thirteen that I saw. Um, there were um, some other um, Ill- illnesses that were in or no, other outbreaks that were inter- interesting. Um, one um, was uh, related to uh, we had actually I think talked about it on the podcast. But the um, the final report wasn't out there, but it was an outbreak of E. coli 157H7 that was linked to um, a goat paddock that was at a child care center. And so finding um, the uh, pathogen isolate in the goat poop and then in soil around the goat paddock and then also in uh, uh, kids uh, inside who had been around this was really interesting. And just five minutes, like here's an outbreak. And and so this is what I took away from it. Wait, so which one was I can I found the right. I found the 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 chicken liver one. What's the other one? The other one is called um it's like an exclusion. Where is it's, it? It's in the same session. Yeah, it's in the same session. Uh oh, 0157 outbreak in childcare provides opportunity ah, for infectious control education. Yep. Um, and so uh, this this one was uh, uh, five confirmed cases, four probable cases, two cases were hospitalized, one case of HUS. Um, you know, the clinical specimens, uh, 0157 with SDX2, indistinguishable PFGE, um, and it was uh, implicated the facility in its goat paddock. So so what I got to hear, and this is this is where where I'm going with this. Um. I don't know exactly how to how to do this, but as I thought about sitting here, um, we use these stories. You and I talk about these stories, uh, you know, every every two weeks. This is these are the events that that make 
us um, that give us things to learn from that are the the starting points for us to understand more about um, risk management. The 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 CSTE part of things, and this this hopefully doesn't come off negatively. Um, my my very brief um, uh, uh, part of this was or thought on this is um, as an epidemiologist. My, my goal, this is me projecting on what I think it is, my goal is to solve it, right? What made these people sick? All right, well, we solved it. It was the goat paddock, right? And then I'm going to move on because I got another thing that I got to solve. And where, where you and I and other extension folks, people that do outreach, people that are in this like public uh, health, food safety realm, where, where we have a job is to take these outbreak stories and help people not have go paddocks in their childcare facility, or if they do have a go paddock with their childcare facility, how do you make sure that the, uh, the E. coli 157H7 doesn't make it into the, into the kids. Uh, but there, there's a, there's a barrier, there's a bottleneck, which is, I didn't know anything about this conference. Like I didn't know, I didn't know that I was going to get like 40 outbreaks. And this, that was just one session. I went to three more sessions over the last two days that gave me another 20 outbreaks or 30 outbreaks. E. coli, um, uh, salmonella from raw eggs that were linked to undercooked pierogies, um, uh, a, um, a homemade ice cream milk mixture that was made in a classroom in Nebraska, I think it was, that led to like uh, 30 kids getting sick from salmonella and teriditis. Um, these, this is the gold. This is the stuff. These outbreaks are the things that we use every day in our um, in, in our education and training and outreach and, um, any of the programs that I use, I always start off with, well, here, here are the things that could go wrong go wrong. These are real, real live narratives. And so, so I sat there and thought, how do we, what do I do about this? And how do I like reach out to these people to, to write something about it? And so I'm, I'm thinking about as we sort of, um, shift barf blog and relaunch things over the next couple of months, really focusing on, on calling these people and saying, you gave an amazing presentation for five minutes. Can you share your notes with me? And, and we'll write it up. We'll, you know, we'll write it up in, in your voice, but let's get these stories out there on barf blog where we can share them. And then I reached out and, and I don't know, um, I don't know where, where this is going to go or, um, if anything else will, will come of it, but there's, there's an outbreak museum. Are you aware of that? Do you know what the outbreak? I am. Yeah. So the Outbreak Museum. I, um, I follow Outbreak Museum on Twitter. <laughs> me too. Uh, it's run by um, Hillary Booth uh, who in uh, Oregon State Department of Health, I think. Um, and so as I was, I was DMing with Hillary, who's on vacation, who wasn't at CSTE while this was all going on. I don't know Hillary personally, other than through the through the Twitter. And I was like, you know, there's we should do something. We should the Outbreak Museum, Barf Blog, Food Safety Talk. We should we should try and tell these stories. Um, but, but we got to get them out, right? Like we got to work with those, those folks who have the stories. So I wonder if there's like an opportunity to do some, some like crossover work with, with, with others to, to be like, Hey, let's do a 15 minute podcast episode on this, you know, this goat, goat outbreak and just to get the stories out. Because yeah, yeah, here's the thing. Like these stories are getting out there to people that attend CSTE, which is hardly anybody. Right. Now you're as a, as a, as a person with a press pass, you're there and you're seeing this and, and yeah, I mean, it's just, and, and I mean, I understand maybe you, maybe you want to publish this, so you don't want to get it out there yet. But there's got to be a lot of these that are just never going to go any further than sitting on the CSD website, right? 
Right. And and that's the thing is like, and for uh, in the, the state and local public health world, getting it to the CSTE website is a big deal. Like, and it should be right. Like I'm, I'm stepping out of my, my small, uh, maybe it's not even small, maybe my large health department, but I'm sharing this with my peers and colleagues in the epidemiology world. We, here's what we solve. And if you're looking at an outbreak that looks like this, here are some things that you should think about, right? Like this is, this is how we did it. And, and what, what I realized, you know, as I was sitting there, I was like, you know, I'm the, 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 the role for, for me, for us is to take that and, and sort of say, maybe they weren't even going to publish it because they don't have resources. It's not valued. It's just like getting it out and CAE was, was the important part. So now, now how can we help move it to the larger audience? Cause the, there's no one from, no one in the food industry went to CST. No one's there. Right. Like no one. And, and, I, and it's hard to be like, well, why would you go? It's like, well, because there's a bunch of restaurant related outbreaks or there's a bunch of egg related outbreaks here that that we need to know about. And as you look at the traceback investigation on what were the practices that led to it anyway, it was fascinating. And I'm going to write a bunch of stuff about it uh, for for Barf Blog. And it was a good use of a press pass. Well, yes. And I would say also, you know, these are great inspirations for educational materials. These are great inspirations for outreach activities. These are great inspirations for research. And and there's even stuff here, Ben, that didn't even get presented at CSTE. Like, I am really bummed that the talk entitled Pull Your Pork Properly. Pull Your Pork. <laughs> <laughs> Canceled. Canceled. Pull Your Pork. Pull Your Pork Properly, a large salmonellosis outbreak at a picnic in Pennsylvania. Yep, Absolutely. Um, so anyway, uh, CST happens annually. I'm going to, I'm going to try and make my way back there next year to hear more of these outbreaks. But in the meantime, I'm going to really, uh, really follow up with, with folks, um, on this and say, how can we help tell these stories and get them to the, um, to the industry? So, well, and you know, here, here's an idea and I'm, this is, you know, just, just, just putting that out there. One way to do this would be to, to take food safety talk on the road to the next CSTE with press passes and then get oh. a get a room and bring people in and say hey look would you would you talk to us for 15 minutes right we got to do it cuz they're all in the same room right let's do it i love it i love it okay so um, anyway, hey. put that put that in your rolodex done um and i got a heart out here okay. um but uh good good episode um and uh i will uh, i will talk to you later and then i will um there won't be any after dark cuz i'm going to hang up Okay. Um, but I will text you and we'll figure out another time to, to, uh, record in our next episode. All right. And, and put your call recording in the Dropbox as soon as you can. And I'm also going to text you all of the titles that I captured. Perfect. All right. I will, uh, talk to you soon. Thanks, Don. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.